thank you for joining me for Ask Pastor Trav. We're going to look at some of your questions that have been submitted to me this week and look at what the Bible has to say about them. Uh, normally on Sunday nights, I love to do an equipped teaching course for our church uh, from Ephesians 4.12, which says to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What I want to do today is to take some questions that you've got as you are probably staying inside uh, more as well as I am, and just a way to interact with uh, what people are maybe thinking about, questioning about the Bible, and let's see what God's Word has to say about it this week. So we got five questions we want to look at this week. Uh, the five are, um, number one, where did Jesus go after he died? Number two, uh, and let's tell you, two through five kind of deal with kind of the uh, pandemic that's going along uh, right now in our world. Uh, number two, should we obey the government's gathering guidelines? Number three, should we treat Easter Sunday differently? Number four, what could God be teaching the church during this time? And number five, what could God be teaching your family during this time? So let's look at these together. Number one, where did Jesus go after he died? This is a uh, great question, and it's also a very complex question, but one that I, I hear very often, and recently this one has been submitted to me, about uh, what happened between the time, as we're looking forward to celebrating Easter, what happened between the time that he died on Friday and arose on Sunday? As we looked at last week, we talked about when Christ was resurrected and how it was on the third day that he rose in the Jewish calendaring system. But a lot of people want to know, well, what happened Friday night, Saturday, and up to Sunday uh, on sunrise? Like, where was he? during that time. And a lot of it comes down to really stemming from this one issue. So the Apostles' Creed was given to us hundreds of years ago, and it was kind of a way to really catechize really um, a lot of the church's major tenets of theology, the major things that we think about, about God's Word. And one of the statements in that that's been used throughout generations is, is it talks about Jesus, that he descended into hell. And, uh, and so that, that comes from um, a scripture, but it also has kind of been used in a way that I don't think is exactly correct or accurate as we would understand it. See, if you look throughout pages of scripture, you're going to notice something that's different, especially if you look at the Old Testament and New Testament. But the development of heaven and hell was somewhat progressive in, in the sense of that the Old Testament didn't have as thorough of an understanding of heaven and hell as much as the New Testament did. And even throughout that, there are limited things that are spoken on it. Now, Jesus would speak about heaven. He would speak about hell very often. Uh, but yet, as far as he never broke down to where, say, Americans would love to know to say, can you give me the 10 point bullet list of what uh, the teaching is? We don't exactly receive that, but we do get some important insight. The thing that you need to understand that in the Old Testament, there was another term that was used a lot that spoke about what happened after someone died, and that was the place of Sheol. Uh, it, it wasn't hell, it wasn't heaven, it was Sheol, and Sheol was the place of the dead. So the Old Testament understanding of when someone died, there was this place that you would go to, it was called Sheol, uh, and it literally just meant place of the dead. In the New Testament, that word is kind of used as well, but you'll often see it as Hades, once again, it's a little bit different because Hades is kind of this understanding of how they would understand that Jewish concept, especially back in the time of writing the Bible, that Hades was kind of the Old Testament equivalent to Sheol, and that there was also this other place that would be hell. So it was this sense, and it's a place basically saying it's the state of when someone has died. It was, it was kind of that place where the body stays on the earth, but that the soul departs in death. And so 
then you'll understand that when, when Jesus was to teach or the scripture would teach about hell, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. For his presence, uh, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then, listen to this, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this understanding of Sheol in the Old Testament, using the same word in the New Testament, is the place uh, uh, would be Hades. Uh, and in Revelation, it's saying, look, there's this place where one day death and Hades is going to be thrown into the lake of fire, or the lake of fire is what we know known as hell. So it's this place of, of think about it this way, that you would die, but then after death comes judgment and it determines where your eternal destiny will be. So one of the main passages, or really the main passage that's kind of confused about this thought of, did Jesus actually descend into hell between Friday and Sunday? Did he actually go down and, and spend time in hell during that time? It comes from a, a kind of unique passage that a lot of uh, interpreters struggle with. It's from 1 Peter chapter 3, and in verse 18, he says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Now you may be thinking, I don't know if I really understand that passage so much. You're not alone. In fact, some of the leading scholars debate on what exactly this means. What I think we can go from it is that it's saying that Christ suffered for our sins. Okay, we we're all good there. That the righteous died for the unrighteous there. So he might bring us to God. All good. Being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. Okay, it makes sense. His body was physically dead, but that didn't mean that he was gone, right? That we, we say this, that once someone dies, that their spirit lives on. Um, then verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison. Now, now what exactly does that mean? Typically, when you speak of spirits, while people would have spirits, when you think of spirits in the Bible, most often they're talking to angelic beings or demonic beings. And so what this seems to be is not that it doesn't say that Christ suffered in hell. It doesn't say that he went to hell. It says he proclaimed to spirits in prison. So does that mean in prison, once again, not using the word hell, but prison, could that be this sense of understanding of death, that the people who have died, that Christ's victory on the cross was kind of like this heralding message for all people, uh, alive and dead, to be able to see God's promise through the scriptures towards Christ are now fulfilled. And so when Jesus stands there victorious over sin and over death, it is a message to all spirits, uh, living and dead, that Christ is triumphant, that God's plan A to reverse what happened in the garden has taken place and it has succeeded. So this is a message of triumph that he is really proclaiming in front of his enemies in some way. How has that taken place? How was that translated, communicated? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. And honestly, I don't know if the details are that important. But what is important to know is that Christ, even though he was dead, that he was triumphant and victorious in that moment. And so to the spirits in prison, it's not that he went to hell. It's that his, he was dead. He was physically dead. But in that, while his spirit lived on and soon to be resurrected through his body on Sunday morning, it was this moment of saying that he had triumphed. 
Um, Acts 2.31 is, a, is another troublesome place in this because um, as, as Peter is speaking of uh, giving this Pentecost sermon, he says that Jesus went to Hades. And once again, it says Hades, the equivalent of Sheol. They're saying Jesus was dead. It's not that Jesus went to hell. Jesus was dead. And because in that, he's quoting from Psalm 16 that spoke of Sheol, the place of the dead. And and remember even when Jesus was on the cross and one of the thieves next to him says, will you remember me? And, he, and what did he say? Today I will see you in paradise. Well, could Jesus be in paradise if then on Friday night he was actually having to hang out in hell? Because somehow we have to understand this. Christ didn't go to hell because some people would think he went to hell because he had to still pay for the punishment of our sins. No, no, no. When he was on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. It's complete. It's done. So we don't have to worry about if something was left undone that he had to go into descend into hell to suffer. No, he after his death, it was a triumphant clarion call to all those who believed him and all those who had denied him that he was triumphant. He was victorious even in his death and resurrection Sunday if anyone was left wondering, uh, he made it known very well. So that's where Christ was uh, between Friday and Sunday, is that he was dead. It wasn't that he was suffering in hell, but he was dead. Even yet, he was triumphant. Okay, question number two comes into kind of what the culture is going through right now as it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic that's uh, honestly sweeping through our country and something that honestly, you know, we're, we're still praying about uh, and, and, and many of us are fearful about and trying to take all the precautions we can and to see if we can meet needs. But the question comes up, should we obey the government's gathering guidelines? So within my own church family and also with friends that I have around the country and even some that are missionaries on the other side of the world, uh, to groups of pastors that I would say are, um, you might say colleagues, but I would say better partners in the gospel that we're not competing with one another. We're not trying to keep territory or whatnot. We're, we're friends and brothers in Christ. Had a lot of discussions this week about what do we do? Because originally we thought, okay, um, they have recommended that at first it was um, no groups gathering more than 200, then it went down to 100, then went it down to 50, then went down to 10, and now we are being told uh, in some areas, hey, no more than three. Uh, and, and as it continues to go like that, it's hard to make plans as a church because, once again, this is not so much about uh, a fear of anything other than you as a, I'll just tell you that as a shepherd, I want to take care of those that I've been entrusted to watch over uh, the flock that God has purchased with his own blood, but yet he's called me to be an under shepherd and to watch out for. And so it's a difficult thing, right? Because you go uh, out of all the things that are changing, you want something to stay consistent. And even as a doctor friend told me recently, he says, I'm more concerned about what this can do to our fear and anxiety if everything shuts down, right? Uh, and that, so as a church, it, it's been difficult as church leaders try to figure out how do we continue to navigate things like this and also to take care of our people during this time. And so as the government uh, continues, whether it's your, uh, if it's at a national level, uh, we've had um, stipulations come down from our governor and even our mayor about how they want us to do things. It's literally like a moving target. You feel like you're playing ping pong or you're making this plan and changing this. And so some people said, hey, look, can the government even tell us we have this right, this freedom to worship and this freedom to gather? And can they tell us that we shouldn't do this? Well, here's something I want to make sure because, uh, in fact, I was uh, asked um, on an interview with our local news. Um, well, on the first Sunday that we were there, they wanted to ask what, what my thoughts were on what other churches were doing compared to what we were doing. 
and, and I kind of felt that might have been somewhat of a trap of a question. I said, it's not my responsibility to tell what any other church ought to do. And I'm not going to tell what any of our church members ought to do. I'm just going to say, here's what I'm going to do as our pastor uh, to be able to try to make sure that we can continue to disciple people during this time. But I do know we want to go to the Lord's word for strength because and wisdom and direction because in times like these, we don't want to be dictated by our emotions. We don't want to look at what someone else is doing and either say we have to do that or we have to completely do the opposite. A lot of times in church, it seems like we almost demonize what someone else is doing or idolize what someone else is doing. And we know that everyone has to be able to make sure they have the right judgment call on it. Well, Romans 13, starting in verse 1, it says it this way. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, let me just stop there for a second. He goes, look, you need to be subject to all governing authorities. And you might go, whoa, whoa. How, how could that be? Because you look at it and you say, um, sometimes, don't you look at it in certain times in the Bible where the government would ask the people to do things that they shouldn't do? And the answer is, or that they would say, hey, these people of God, they're not supposed to do this. And, and yet the people in the Old Testament, the New Testament, sometimes were they defiant? Absolutely. I'm glad you said that. We're going to get to that in a second. But these are matters when it comes down to this is not singling out the church. So it would be a very different thing if the president or the governor or the mayor came on and said, you know what? Schools are operational. Movie theaters are operational. Parks are, oper- are operational. But churches, you have to shut down. That's a different situation than what we're currently dealing with. We are not dealing with where churches are being singled out, bullied, or in some type of way persecuted because we're not able to meet. In fact, the government leaders have been very careful in their wording not to say you can't because of the freedom of religion and the freedom to gather and our constitutional rights. They understand that. But here's what I I see is that I see government leaders concerned about the health of people. I see government leaders realizing there's all types of fallouts that can, can happen on a financial and political and relational kind of landscape. I see them struggling with that, and they have asked that all gatherings cease. So in this, as someone who is um, really, really wants to gather our folks together and really, really high on faith, and as someone who always believes in the concept that, that God is sovereign and can take care of us, I also want to use wisdom, and I also want to be biblical, which comes to that Romans 13 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God. God has given us government. There's nobody put in position that somehow slipped past his grasp, okay? And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So if God has appointed government and I resist that, who am I ultimately uh, resisting? Well, this passage will say I'm resisting God. Um, And verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Will you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. He's saying, look, government's been given for our good to be able to cease um, unhindered just evil in our world. Government's supposed to be a hand to kind of slow that down so much. It's, it's a should be a gift from God. It's not always a gift from God, but it should be. And then in verse four, for he is God's servant for your good. So I have to look that at the president, the Senate, the house, the governor, the mayor, everyone in play, Even if I don't agree with them all, even if I don't uh, appreciate all the things that they say or do, 
says this, that those individuals are God's servant for my good and for other citizens' good. And so for me, I look at this and say, is there a biblical mandate that I have? The biblical mandate is that to obey government as far as it does not contradict what Scripture teaches me to do. Because you think about it, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are being told not to preach the gospel anymore. And what do they say? Verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. So you go, oh, here's Peter and John saying the government or the leaders or the different people are saying you need to stop speaking. And the whole book of Acts is these guys saying we won't stop speaking. In fact, we'll even go to our grave if we have to telling you that Jesus got up. Here's the difference. We are not being told to cease from sharing the gospel. We are not being told to celebrate the resurrection. We are being told to cease gathering in large groups for the safety of other people. In that case, and if we're not being singled out, then at that point do you say, is it a good thing to be subject to governing authorities? When I think of Daniel, for example, Daniel is one of my favorite characters in the Bible who really, in a lot of ways, was someone who was uh, had conviction among a compromising culture, and he just was unshaken. It didn't matter if he went to the lion's dens or if his friends went to the fiery furnace. They were going to do whatever it's called. So even one time, the government said, stop praying to your God. Don't pray to anybody but the king. And what does Daniel do? He opens up his window just like he always does, and he prays towards God. Why? Because this is an issue of the highest um, devotion to the Lord. They're saying, you can't be devoted to God. That's something that Daniel said. When the government tells me I can't be faithful to God, that's when it's crossed the line and I will have courageous conviction no matter what happens to me. But also realize this, Daniel was a part of the exile, right? And in Jeremiah chapter 29, Daniel had been studying this passage. In fact, it talks about he was studying it uh, in Daniel chapter 9. He's reading the book of Jeremiah and figuring out how long are we going to be in exile. And one of the things that he says in there is that uh, it says, uh, it, the passage that we all know is that um, that God has plans for you and there are plans for good and plans for welfare and hope and that kind of stuff. Great verse, verse 11. But before those verses, there's place where it says, hey, you're going into exile, you're going to Babylon where Daniel and these guys are going and Jeremiah says this from the Lord. You need to go ahead and build houses, plant vineyards, uh, have get married, have kids, establish yourself because you're going to be here a while, 70 years in fact. And one of the things it said was, seek the welfare of your city, wherever you're in. Well, they were going into godless, horrific, horrible cities that did not follow God. And he was said, seek the welfare of that city. Did Daniel seek the welfare of that city? You better believe it. He used all of his gifts and abilities to help the uh, city and the country advance. He was brilliant in the way that he helped out. But the moment when it crossed the line on his religious conviction, that's when he wouldn't stand for it. But seeking the good of the city, seeking the good of the other citizens for the king himself, uh, yeah, he was completely um, someone who was seen as intentional and loving and serving in those contexts. And so I think we have to, if we think through that, yes, we, we need to consider those. and You need to have your own convictions on this, but... Um, deciding to obey the government's gathering guidelines right now is not an issue of saying you can't follow God. Uh, I don't think personally. I think it's more so if they did single out churches, that's a different story altogether and we have to react differently. But at this point, we have to think through how can we seek the good of the cities around us?
Question number three, as we are dealing with this um, time of quarantine or different uh, just social distancing that we're living in, the question comes out of this. Well, if we're not meeting together as a church, should we treat Easter Sunday differently? Okay, so that's one of the things. When this original guideline came on, it said, okay, look, two weeks, 15 days, just some social distancing, don't do as much, and we're going to be okay. It seems like that um, the numbers aren't trending down. We're, we're, we're kind of figuring out exactly where it is and we're catching up on how we check up on people. And so uh, as someone who on this Sunday you're watching this is March 29th, but one of the things that's interesting is that we've got two Sundays from now, two weeks from right now uh, is Easter Sunday on April 12th. And that is kind of what some people would say. Um, I've heard many pastors say, well, Easter is kind of like the church's Super Bowl. And while I understand that and agree, I also want to push back a little bit on that differently because some people are saying, well, we just can't. We'll follow all the guidelines for all these other Sundays, except for Easter Sunday. What should we do differently? So I've been struggling with that issue as a pastor and, and been asked that question. But I want to think through it for a second. So why do we celebrate Easter? Why do we celebrate it this year on April 12th? Because we don't always celebrate on April 12th. Well, let's look at it this way. In Matthew chapter 28, verse number one, uh, Matthew writes, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So it says, after the Sabbath, now in the Jewish calendar system, the Sabbath was Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown was a complete day. Saturday at sunset became actually really Sunday, right? So so what happens is, is that he says, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day. So it's almost sunrise on Sunday morning, but in the calendar system, it's been Sunday since a few hours when, when sunset on Saturday. Now, after that Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, these two Marys are going to go see the tomb, and at that point, there's a great earthquake. So we celebrate Easter, honestly, every Sunday. So when I first started in ministry, I can remember that I always thought I'd heard for so long, Easter's kind of like the Super Bowl, right? It's just, if you're ever going to reach anybody, if you're ever going to have high attendance Sunday, if you're ever going to do anything creative, anything going all out, this is the one Sunday of the year. And so pastors have jokes about those kind of Christians who only come a couple of times a year. They'll say, oh, these are the CEOs. They're the Christian and Easter only or whatnot. Or, and they'll make these kind of like snide comments, right? But all of a sudden, it's like everybody comes to church on that Sunday. So there's this pressure that you feel that you got to really be all out. What I've thought about in recent years is, is that if our churches are flooded with more people or just everybody's on the same time, you might have more guests than normal. What I've almost felt is that sometimes the church feels a little bit more awkward than it does on every Sunday. And here's why. I think you have a lot of extra people there, and sometimes the church freezes up going, can we be ourselves? And you almost put this high expectation that this Sunday needs to be different than other Sunday. While that is true at some level, can I just tell you something? The reason that you worship on Sunday versus any other day of the week is actually because of Easter. It's not because of the Easter holiday once a year. It's that Sunday is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. So why do we gather on Sundays rather than Saturdays? We do that because Christ rose on Sunday. So Easter was the Sunday, the year that Christ was resurrected. It was the Sunday right after the Jewish Passover that happened on that Friday. So for us, 
Um, if we were to do that, we would always celebrate the Sunday after the Jewish Passover. Well, we don't do that, right? Why, why do we celebrate it? And you might notice this, okay, we always celebrate Christmas on December 25th, but why is Easter change every year, right? Because obviously then we're not celebrating the exact day. We don't know the exact day. So Easter is celebrated. Here's how we, we uh, come up with it in our calendar system. It's celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox. Did you get that? You understand it? Because I really don't. And I need someone to help me, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's weird. Where is that in scripture? That Easter is celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox. Where is that? It's anywhere between March 22nd and April 25th. So that's why sometimes Easter seems super early and sometimes it seems super late. So this year it's on April 12th. Why? Because it's the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox. So so where does this come from? Well, it's hard to figure out the origin of where this is and even why it's called Easter. You're not going to see the word Easter in your Bible. Where does that come from? Well, in this, some people have different varying uh, origins of where the name comes from and where it happens. Some people think that it had to do with a pagan holiday uh, that was uh, around the fertility goddess and uh, spring and stuff blooming and and things advancing. uh, That somehow when the church got really established and the government kind of locked on to Christianity, that they said, hey, we're going to redeem this holiday and change it from meaning this to something else. That is a possibility that happened. Uh, some people say uh, that it had to do with the old word for East. There was a month that was kind of uh, connected to East and sort of East and springing forth and whatnot. And so it was based on that. Honestly, we don't know. There's a lot of different people who will say different things. But at some point, the church began to celebrate uh, Easter as an established holiday. Well, just so you know, if you look in the Bible, the Bible doesn't instruct you to take one day a year to remember Jesus rising from the grave. It says, take one day a week to celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. That's Sunday. Because in this, the Sabbath day in the Jewish calendar system was Saturday. It was the seventh day of the week. First day of the week was Sunday. And on Saturday, that Sabbath day is the rest. So on the first day of the week is on Sunday. So that's why we worship on Sunday. That's why Jewish people, one of the most... Uh, significant um, realities that something had changed for people like Peter, James, and John, where they used to always worship on Saturday. Now they're worshiping on Sunday. Why? Because Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday. And they did that every week. It was a celebration. This is the day he rose. It wasn't once a year. So some churches don't like using the word Easter Sunday. In fact, that's why some churches, you'll see them say Resurrection Sunday versus Easter Sunday, because we don't know where the word Easter comes from. It really isn't biblical. It's not something that we kind of hold on to. Um, so some people say, well, what does that mean about Easter egg hunts and Easter bunnies and Easter pastels and all that kind of stuff? Where does that come from? Well, you won't find any of those things in the Bible. And um, some people say, well, are they, are they okay to do? Are they evil? Should we abstain from them? Here's what I would give you warning about. Romans 14, 5 says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What I'm saying is this, you really need to consider that whatever your Easter celebrations are going to be, which are going to probably be different this year, if you gather as a church, if you do these things, but even on a regular year, uh, on an Easter Sunday, you need to be convinced in your own mind as a member, as a Christian, as a church leader, whatever you are, to say, I'm convinced in my own mind that what we're doing is right. And I'll say this as a as a pastor that's thinking, okay, if, if we're going to change our gathering procedures right now to keep everyone safe, do I just break all those rules on Easter Sunday because it's Easter? 
My thought is whatever I would do on Easter Sunday, I probably should do on every Sunday because every Sunday is when we celebrate resurrection, not just once a year after the lunar eclipse on the vernal equinox. Does that make sense? We want to be at a place where we say, you know what? Every Sunday is a, is a, is a day of the week that we remember Jesus defeated death and we celebrate that. So yeah, once a year is a nice thing to celebrate, but can I be honest? You need to celebrate it once a week by going to church, uh, gathering with your church, but also say this, the power of resurrection of Christ should be changing your life every single day. Question number four, what could God be teaching the church during this time? So as we are sitting here in social distancing and instead of being uh, in our church's fellowship hall going through this tonight, we are doing this through an online stream so what could God be teaching the church during this time? Let me, let me push back to the last question just for a second. Could we have possibly idolized certain days and certain practices as a church? I mean, if a church, if, if I'm a church leader and all of my hope is getting high attendance Sunday on one day a year because the vernal equinox and the lunar eclipse and all these kind of things like this happens and I go, this is high attendance Sunday. And then all of a sudden everybody drops off and they're not there the following Sunday. Like, what is that saying to me? I'm putting all my hope in an event, whether it's uh, that Sunday and this specific sermon, this cantata, this Easter egg hunt, you name it. What is that teaching us? Have somehow maybe... Is the Lord, even in this, while this is a bad situation, that he's making good to those who love him and called according to his purpose? Is he teaching us that we've idolized certain days, certain practices? Is he stripping us down just a little bit to the bare essentials of what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a church? That's not an unwelcome thing for us to consider. Maybe God could be teaching us during this. Have we forsaken the assembling together? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, look, there's some of you that are forsaking assembling together. And is this some a time where God's going, uh, you, you want that opportunity to meet at any time. And somehow we've taken the church for granted. It's almost like someone who's been married a long time and has taken their spouse for granted. I think some of us have taken the assembly of the saints, the church gathered together, and we've, we've taken it for granted. That we come and go when we want to. There are certain things that would cause us to say, well, I'm not going this week or I'm not going to connect with these people this week because these things are more important. And I realized this. Um, last year when uh, all the Lifeway stores closed was such a hard time. I just remember going, man, I just I hate that Lifeway, these, a lot of these brick and mortar bookstores are making, and especially this Baptist bookstore, this Christian bookstore that I've loved going to for so long. And yet I had Amazon boxes in my trash can. So like I wanted the the ability to go into a Lifeway store when I wanted to, but yet by my actions, I was showing that I didn't prioritize doing that. Here's what I think some people of us are feeling right now. You're feeling like it's wrong and you want to gather together. And I go, well, if you wanted to gather together, how much of a priority has it been in recent weeks, in recent months, in recent years? Is it seen as a priority in your life? Have we forsaken our assembly together? Could God be teaching also this during this time? Have we neglected intentional relationships? Can I just tell you that when I'm forced to have Zoom gospel groups, we're having less chit-chat. We're getting right to the point. We're not just doing these frivolous, how you doing? Okay, I'm fine. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. No, we're being super, super honest. And that is something that's good and necessary in times like this. Maybe God could be teaching the church during this time that maybe we've gotten complacent. Maybe we've gotten a little bit used to things and that maybe it's time for us to wake up to the need, to the call that God has on our lives as disciples, but also as a church as a whole. And so even during this time, God will be, be growing us and teaching us. 
question number five. The last one is this, is what could God be teaching your family during this time? So if we talk about what God's teaching the church, what could be teaching your family? Well, all I know is this, um, as a lot of my week has been working from my dining room table uh, rather than a church office, uh, it's caused me to rethink things, but I've also noticed a lot of things in our own family. And as I also go around our neighborhood and and, uh, interact with some of the families in our neighborhood, here's one thing that God may be teaching your family have our have have our calendars gotten too full? Uh, I've heard from a lot of people that said, you know what, this is kind of crazy, but it's kind of been nice to have margin, like not going somewhere every night, and I don't feel so ragged. This is different, and you may feel like shut in, but right now you kind of feel like, whew, it's been good to have a little reprieve, to have a good breath. Maybe God's teaching us that our calendars are too full. We're too busy. We're running ragged, as Psalm 127 says. Maybe, number two, that our family times have become too rushed. Some of you have been going, man, it's just been great. We've been getting all our schoolwork done before dinner time, and we've been able to sort of go outside and go on a walk together or play board games at night or watch a good movie together. And when was the last time that we were able to do that? That maybe God is teaching your family during this time that our family times have become too rushed. Maybe have our neighbors been neglected? Some of you have been outside more, and you've been able to have interactions, and you may have been practicing social distancing from six feet away, right? But you still feel like, I've had an opportunity to meet neighbors and to see how they're doing and to check in on them. That's a good thing that God could be teaching us during this time. Have our families been overlooked? Have we just not really, we've spent so much time on our devices and so many activities and other things that we've overlooked our family? Or have our walks been marginalized? Right now, you may have more opportunities than what you typically have. That can be a good thing that you can step back and say, okay, am I doing what I need to do as, as I have a little bit more margin in my schedule that I'm developing my own walk with Christ? So God could be teaching your family a lot during this time. I would say be encouraged by it um, and be very, very careful that you're growing in holiness and growing closer to him rather than further away. And one thing I'd also say in times that you are, uh, if you feel like you're quarantined, even if it's not an official quarantine, that you're spending more time. And, and some of us as parents are having to do more with schooling and other responsibilities that we're typically used to. I know that these times are different. I know they're challenging I know they may not be what you're used to, but can I also say this? Be very careful in the way that you speak about your situation, especially with your kids around. Your kids are not a burden. They're a blessing is what Psalm 127 says. The schoolwork, you teaching and learning things, that might be a burden, but your children are not. Be very careful in these times that you're not speaking something where they feel like they're a burden to you because they're not. They're a gift from God that you need to cherish with everything that you have. Those are the five questions for this week's edition of Ask Pastor Trav. Uh, we're not exactly sure of what will be going on next week, but we will m- make sure that you keep you informed as to what we will do next week. Uh, maybe we'll have some other questions. If you do have some questions from the Bible that you would love to have answered, I would love for you to go ahead, make a comment, send a message to me as we continue to seek God's uh, instruction and direction from His Word with the questions that we have. Thanks for joining